Amen. Thank you, Brad. Our scripture reading this morning uh, comes from 2 Samuel. We've been doing a series in David's life. Uh, this fall, we looked at primarily 1 Samuel. So for a few weeks here in the spring, uh, the next four or five weeks, we're going to be looking here in 2 Samuel at the continuation as, Samuel, as, as David has settled into his capital city and he is really building his kingdom. And this is a really, a really important passage here in, in 2 Samuel 9. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's only 13 verses. And you can pray that I am able to pronounce Mephibosheth right as we go throughout. We were trying to think of what a, we have, there's a pastor in our, anyway, this is an aside. There's a pastor in our little group that always has nicknames for everybody. And so like, what would the nickname, would he be Bo? Would he be, you know, but we're going to go with Mephibosheth, okay? So we're going to stick with the full name. Uh, but that's a tongue tire. Here we go. And David said, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir the son of Amiel, at Lo-Debar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lo-Debar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And the king then called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth... Your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servant. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. For he ate always at the king's table. Now, he was lame in both feet. This is God's word. Would you say with me? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Imagine, and maybe you don't have to imagine, maybe you've experienced this, but for most of us, imagine that you achieved all of your goals, that you really were able to achieve work success, that you met your financial goals, all of your kids were grown and doing great and there was nothing to worry about, there were no pressing needs calling for your attention, you were in a place of complete security and strength. I mean, you made it, right? Like, you made it. Now, if you really made it, here's my question to you this morning, how would you celebrate? Have you ever really got to that place where you're like, man, okay, whew, we made it. How would you celebrate? Would it be a luxurious long vacation maybe? Or a really big party 
with your friends or maybe an expensive, a really, really expensive gift to kind of commemorate the joy you feel. There are lots of ways that we, that we could imagine that moment in our lives. Well, that, that scenario describes David's life as this chapter opens. 2 Samuel chapter 8, which we skipped, recounts David's victories. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we're shown what David did from that place of security and strength, settled into his capital city, all of his enemies defeated, there was finally peace, everything was going really well, David had made it. And the first thing David did when he had made it is he began to immediately look for someone to love. Eugene Peterson put it this way, he said, some people when they become successful use all of their energy and resources protecting and guarding their success, but David went looking for ways to be generous. So chapters 8 and chapters 10, on either side of this particular passage we're looking at this morning, they tell of David the warrior, the conquering king, subduing his enemies and establishing his kingdom. But here, chapter 9 tells us of David, the compassionate friend. And it really is remarkable to see the way David acts here. He says in verse 1 of chapter 9, Is there anyone left... Of the house of Saul, that I may show kindness to him for Jonathan's sake. You may have noticed that word kindness repeated. The word kindness is actually this really, really important Hebrew word, hesed, or if you wanted me to get technical, but it would become splash zone up in this area here. It's chesed. It's a C H E S E D as it's translated into English, but chesed love. And the word is repeated again in verse 3. It's there in verse 1, you see, in verse 3, and then in verse 7. Each time translated as kindness here. And so it is in many ways the theme of this chapter, this kindness, the kindness of God, it says. It's the kindness of God that David is showing in his own kindness towards this man, Mephibosheth. It is the theme of this chapter. And because it's the theme of the chapter, it needs to be our theme this morning as well, too. Now, it's a really important word in the Bible. If you need, it's going to be hard for you to understand the stories Bible, the Bible is telling if you don't understand the importance of this word, okay? And so that's what we want to do. We want to kind of try to, we want to define what we mean by hesed here. We want to see the source of where hesed comes from as, it, as it's being expressed here in David's life. And we also want to, want to take a minute to look at the object the object of Hesed, this man Mephibosheth, or if you want to say it this way, if you see the outline I've given you, when you talk about Hesed, you really are talking about a love that has these three components. It is adjectival. Bear with me, okay? I'll, I'll explain. It is a derivative love. It's an adjectival love and a derivative love, and it's a covenant love. That's really what is meant by this word Hesed, and all three of those things are really here, or at least here in this text as we look at it in the larger picture. What we're going to do is go from kind of the bigger picture of the whole Bible and really begin to zoom in uh, and and look at this chapter and then exactly what David does here in great detail, okay? And so let's walk together uh, through the next few minutes as we look at this in each of those uh, different headings first. When we talk about hesed, the kindness that David shows, the kindness of God that is displayed for us in David's kindness to this man, Mephibosheth, here. It is, first, a love that is adjectival. And it's in, the, it's in the adjectives that you really get the definition of the word. Now, let me explain. In order to, find, to define hesed, we need to see how it is used throughout the Bible. Okay, We need to kind of step back and think about the Bible as a whole and just do kind of a biblical theology of this word, if we could, for just a minute. Now, hesed is the Hebrew word, and it's a word that combines the ideas of 
affection and warmth and intimacy that is a part of love with also the with, at the same time the ideas of stability and dependability and commitment and so forth and so it's translated here kindness again you'll see verse 1 verse 3 verse 7 but it's also translated in different ways. The same word is translated even in the ESV in different ways throughout the scriptures. And then if you add all of the other translations, there are so many ways this word is tried to be, you know, being described by, by um, translators. It's translated steadfast love most often. Whenever you read steadfast love in the ESV, if you're reading the ESV anyway, that typically is this word hesed. But it's also translated loving kindness. It's translated faithful love. It's translated as mercy in some places. And so it's really confusing because you have all these English words that are all trying to describe this one Hebrew word. And the reason there are so many different translations is that there is no single word in English that conveys the full meaning of this, of this word. We don't have an English word that can really kind of get at this, this, you know, at the fullness of what, it's a large word. It's a large word, Eugene Peterson said. And so he said, it's so large that we have no choice but to revert to the use of adjectives and trying to bring out the quality and the depth of the love that it describes. It's not just love. Because we can't even really agree in our culture on what the word love means anymore. It's not just love, it's steadfast love. It's not just Love, it's faithful love, or it's loving kindness, or if you're reading the Jesus Storybook Bible to your kids, it's the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Holy stacking of adjectives there, right? But the Jesus Storybook Bible stacks up those adjectives because there is just no other way to describe the fullness of what this word is trying to convey to us about who God is and about the kind of people that we should be. It is a love that, it, that, define, that defies description in so many ways. It's a love that lands, a love that chooses and then commits, the kind of love that says yes to a person, knowing that that yes has such a profound you know, quality to it that it also comes with a no to a bunch of other things and to other relationships and other commitments. It's this exclusive, loyal love. It's a love that lasts it's a love that stays no matter what. A love with no exit strategy. A love that we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. Have you ever had, have you ever, have you ever had somebody love you like that? Have you ever had someone in your life like that? Have you ever found a love like that that bears all things, that puts up with you when you're difficult and believes all things, that always believes the best about you no matter what, that hopes all things? that never gives up on you and endures all things, that's, that's this word. It is, we're told there in verse 3, it is the love, the kindness of God. It's the love that God has for his people. And so just over and over again, you read about this in the Bible as you go along. Psalm 25.10, all the paths of the Lord are hesed, steadfast love. Psalm 86, you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in hesed, Steadfast love, right? Great is your hesed towards me, the psalmist says. In Psalm 103, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his hesed love towards those who fear him. 
Even the prophets, Isaiah chapter 54, verse 10, for the mount, listen to this, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my hesed love, God says, shall never depart from you. My covenant of peace shall never be removed. Do you know what that means? I mean, think about that verse. It says, God never stops loving. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how many reasons he has to give up, no matter how horrible we are to him, he says, the mountains and the hills. Now, don't think Iron Mountain over here in Lake Wales, okay? Think, I mean, you know, whatever. Not even the Smoky Mountains, the Rockies. Like Rocky Mountain National Park, if you've ever been. He said these mountains, these hills, these majestic, majestic, solid, giant, immovable things. He said, you will sooner watch them crumble and become dust than you will see God stop loving you. He has that kind of affection for you. He is not committed to you. Now, here's what's remarkable is that this word is used so many places in the Bible to describe God's love for his people, but what's remarkable here is that we see David actually doing Hesed love, showing the same kind of kindness and love to this man, Mephibosheth. So Hesed is also the love that we are to show to one another. So the prophet Hosea, he records God's lament about his people, about us. He says, what shall I do with you, O Judah, O my people? Your love, that word is Hesed, your love is like the morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. For He goes on to say, for I desire from you. This is like God's yearning heart desire for his people. He says, I desire steadfast love. I desire for you to be a people of Hesed, not burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then later, Micah 6, in this famous verse, Micah 6, 6 through 8, he says, what shall I do? What shall I do with you? And then the, the, the prophet says, well, with what, with what shall I come before the Lord? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, he says, with 10,000 rivers of oils? He goes so far to say, if I sacrifice my own precious children in the flames, will God be pleased with that? No, he has told you, O oh man, he goes on to say, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love hesed. It's hesed, mercy, kindness, hesed. So we have this impulse that we think, oh, God wants us to be these really buttoned up religious people that like do everything right and follow all the rules and give the right sacrifices and all this kind of stuff. And God's saying, no, I just want you to be a people who love the way I love you, who show hesed. And so it's an adjectival love because there's really no other way to describe it. It's this never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love that God has shown to us and that we are then in turn to show to one another. But secondly... Hesed is a derivative love. And so let's talk about the source of this. And look at the larger context here of 2 Samuel for just a minute as we start to zoom in on this passage and how this material is placed within the larger story of King David's life. Now, artwork that is derivative. If you're not familiar with the, with the art world, <laughs> not that I am, but um, artwork that is called derivative. Derivative is uh, a slight it's a way of, it's, a, it's not a compliment. It's frowned upon because artwork that is derivative lacks creativity and originality, which is, of course, what makes something art. If something is derivative, it is imitative of somebody else's work. It's based on some other source, which is the original, which is the thing that is the most valued. Now, what this means for us is, and what you see in this text as you read it and come even to the, to the material surrounding uh, chapter 9 here, is that 
this hesed love that David shows is not something that originated with him. And so the lesson for us is that hesed has to come to you before it can come from you. It came to David before it came from David. Now the passage we looked at together last week in 2 Samuel 7, God loved David there with hesed first. And his hesed love towards David was the original. David's hesed love towards Mephibosheth was derivative. God made a covenant with David. That is what allowed David to be true to the covenant that he had made with Jonathan and Jonathan's sons and grandsons. I mean, the Apostle Paul just said it very simply like this. We love because he first loved us. Okay, so it's just, I think, an important point for us to make here that you have to be loved by Hesed into loving with Hesed. You have to be loved by Hesed into loving with Hesed because that love I described, all those adjectives we used, it's just too much. It's too costly. It's too... It's too uneven, it's too scary to do it without first being loved by God in the same way. It's the argument Jesus made in Luke chapter 6. We read, Brad read a little while ago, he said, all of these things, love your enemies and, and lend expecting nothing to return and you will be the sons of the most high God for God is the kind of God who's kind even to the ungrateful and the evil and he makes the sun rise on the, the evil and the wicked and the good, and he sends the rain on both the just and the unjust. And so he goes on, be merciful, even as your father is merciful. So we might substitute, show mercy, even as your father has shown mercy. Show hesed, even as God, the father, continues to show hesed to you. So how do you do all of that stuff that Jesus told us to do there? Like, I mean, how do you, how do you love your enemy? I mean, how do you become a person who can show that kind of love to someone who could be so awful to you? I mean, you, there's only one way. You love an enemy by remembering that God loved you when you were his enemy. I mean, Romans 5.10. I mean, how do you give not expecting or even needing to get something back from your giving? Well, Jesus said, the sun came up this morning, didn't it? Now, we didn't see it because, I mean, what's the deal with the gray clouds, guys? Where did our beloved Florida go, right? But most days around here, you wake up and the sun comes up. And Jesus said, how do you give expecting nothing in return? You go outside and you look at the sun rising in the sky. And you said, man, the sun came up this morning, didn't it? God is always doing good and getting in gratitude and complaining back from what he does. And yet he continues to let, make the sun rise every morning. And see, the point of the text is clearly this, that God's kingdom is a kingdom of Hesed. And if we're going to live with the same kingly character and kingly charge as David, which is indeed our calling, then we have to become people who show Hesed too. We were meant to read about David and Mephibosheth here and be inspired towards the same thing in our lives. But here's the thing that you need to keep in mind, and it's really important, that if you read this story here in 2 Samuel 9, and you immediately identify yourself with David, and you begin to say, oh, okay, I gotta be like David. That's the whole point of this is, oh, I'm so not like David, I need to be like David. And if you do that, if you immediately start to identify yourself and put yourself in the story, in the character of David, then you won't get there because before you can become David so that you act like David does here, you first have to become Mephibosheth. Before you can be the one who gives Hesed, you have to be the person who receives it. It has to come to you before it can come through you. And the Jesus story with Bible to reference that again reminds us that the Bible is not about us, that we are not the main character. The Bible is about Jesus, and every story whispers his name. And so David 
points to Jesus, not to you. And if David points to Jesus, then guess who that makes you in this story? Yeah. You are Mephibosheth. Dale Ralph Davis has said in his commentary, we are the Lord's Mephibosheths. I love that little line. We are the Lord's Mephibosheth. And I want to come back to that in some detail in just a minute, but let me say this first. Let me say it this way for now. Hesed love, the love shown to David that then came from David, Hesed love is Calvary love. It is cross-shaped love. On the cross, Jesus died so that we might live. He loved us when we were still sinners, when we were his enemies, when we were unlovable in every way. He endured the wrath of God so that we might have God's smile every day. Jesus left the throne of heaven, the place of honor and blessing. He gave up his place at God's table to restore to us our inheritance and so that we could sit at the king's table all the days of our lives and then forever and ever in eternity. You, because of Jesus, if your faith is in him, you are the honored guest at God's table. What we learn here is that David's hesed love for Mephibosheth, this typology... He is the most like Jesus right here. And David's loving of that man is a picture of the way that Jesus has, in fact, loved us. And so we learn faith energizes love. Without faith, there is no love. Without first being loved by Jesus, there is very little power and energy to love like Jesus. The source of your love has to be his love for you. It's what Paul Miller said. Paul Miller's best book, by the way, don't tell him I said this, but... I think, Bob, you can break it to him if you want to. His best book is the book he wrote on Ruth called A Loving Life. And it's a book about Hesed. And he said this. He said, you endure the weight of love. Anybody, anybody feel the weight of love this morning? You're raising kids? You feel the weight of love. You're raising kids that are having kids? You feel the weight of love. I mean, you, you, you're in charge of a classroom of children at school. You're running a business. You probably feel the weight of love. There is a weight that comes with love. And he says, you endure the weight of love by being rooted in God. Your life energy needs to come from him. Faith is the I-beam. That's a great illustration. He says, faith is the I-beam, the hidden structure of the Christian life that allows you to live with the kind of love you're meant to live. Your hesed is derivative. Your hesed, if you're able to become a person capable of showing that kind of love to other people is God's love for you, in you, through you. You see that? David's love for Mephibosheth was God's love for David in David, for David, in David, through David. And we love with the love of God for us, in us, through us as well. And that thirdly, we got to kind of pick up the pace here a little bit. That leads to this third consideration that Hesed love is also covenantal love. And we want to talk about the object for a minute. Now let's look at this text I know it took us a long time to get there, but I think those things were important, okay? Now, as we come here, Mephibosheth is, in case you missed it, the grandson of Saul, who was the king before David. He was the son of Jonathan, David's best friend. And when news reached Saul's palace that both he and Jonathan had been killed in battle, the servants ran for their lives. Mephibosheth was five years old at the time, and his nurse scooped him up and took him with her to keep him safe because being the living heir to the throne, of course, the assumption was that his life would be in danger now that his father and grandfather were dead. From the Philistines, maybe, or from David, whoever moved into the vacuum of power left by Saul's death, the next king would want him dead. 
And so they all take off and get out of there as fast as they can. And in the haste, what we learn is that Mephibosheth was dropped, resulting in broken bones that never healed and left him without the use of his legs for the rest of his life. Now, everyone knew that there was beef between David and Saul. Not really on David's side so much, but on Saul's side. They knew that there was beef. They didn't know, though, that that there was a covenant that had been made between David and Saul's son, Jonathan. It's in 1 Samuel 20. I can't remember if we looked at it in detail. I think we did uh, in the fall at some point. But both David and Jonathan, in this moment of friendship, vowed to show love to the other's children and grandchildren, uh, you know, come what may. At the time, they did not know which of them would be king. Jonathan being Saul's son, David being the one that Samuel had anointed. So in light of all of that uncertainty, they made a vow. And the vow was to not to act towards the other's family in an atypical way. To not act the way you would typically act, but instead to put their love and loyalty towards one another in the friendship they had ahead of political expediency and to show great love, covenantal love, to generations of those that followed their friendship. Now in this text, David is just making good on that promise that he had made. Listen to the wording there in verse 1. If you look there again, he says, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I might show him Hesed love? Look at the phrase, for Jonathan's sake. See that? And then again in verse 7, Do not fear, he tells, Jonathan, he tells Mephibosheth, for I will show you Hesed love for the sake of your father Jonathan. So David is acting here towards this man in light of the promises that he had made to his father. And that's what I mean by covenant. Covenant is love that is based on commitment, not feelings. When you make a covenant, you promise to act on your promises. You act according to the promises that you've made, not according to your feelings. This is important because it's very rare in our culture now. I guess marriage and marriage vows are probably the closest thing to this that we find in our culture. Not, it's very sparse now, although even that's going away. Because in the more traditional wedding vows, for better or for worse, you know the wording, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. You are promising covenant love. The vows are a promise of future loyalty and love. But what's happening, and I'll give you a little, I'll give you a little hint. Pastors aren't super excited about this part. But what's happening is more and more people are wanting to write their own wedding vows now. Because, of course, expressive individualism. I mean, somebody else's words won't do. I have to have my own. Oh, I'm going to get in trouble. And the vows, listen, <laughs> I need to say this. And the vows they write are terrible. They're horrible. They're horrible. They're sweet and heartfelt, but incredibly misguiding because typically they just express present feelings, not future commitment. I did a wedding a few years ago. Listen, they wrote their own vows, but they didn't tell me. And we were in the middle of the ceremony and I, I didn't even know. And they had to stop me and pull out the paper and read. Now, again, let me give you a little clue. Pastors don't like these kinds of surprises in weddings, okay? My sister, did, my brother-in-law did this to me when I married he and my sister. He didn't have the ring, and it was in a jack, uh, crack, uh, Cracker Jack box on the front row. And didn't tell me. So now when I marry people, I'm like, okay, are there any surprises planned? I need to know, okay? It's okay. You can have surprises. Just I, I need to know. And I mean, and so we did, we did the traditional vows, 
And then they pulled out their paper and said their long vows. And I was just in that moment so struck by the contrast after I kind of got over the, oh, okay, you know. And the juxtaposition between the traditional vows that I led them through and then what they read to one another. Those traditional vows were covenantal. They were promises of future commitment and love for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. Their vows weren't vows. They were a description of how they felt about one another. But here's the problem. What happens when they don't feel that way anymore? David is acting on a covenant that he'd made. He loved Mephibosheth for Jonathan's sake. He acted here on his commitments, not his feelings. Hesed is covenant love. And there are two features of covenant love. It is The first, it is one-way love. It is love without conditions because your reasons for loving are found in you and not the other person. In Hesed, you do not love because the other person is worthy of being loved. You do not love them only when they're behaving in the right way. You love them despite what they deserve. You love them when they're at their best, and you love them even more when they're at their worst. You do not love the other person because they're loving you back. You do not love them to the degree that they return your love. You love them even if you never receive love from them in return. You love regardless of the response. It's one way. And what we know is that this is true of God's love for us. God's love is unconditional because his reasons for loving come from his heart, not anything in us. God loves us because he loves us. Why do you love me, God? Because I love you. But why do you love me? Because I love you. Do you know why that's such good news? If God loves you because he loves you, then that means there's nothing you can do to stop making him love you. But it's also uneven love. You give more than you get. I mean, look at the text. D David gained nothing from this. Mephibosheth got an estate. He got lands and servants. He got a place at the king's table. He got relationship and access. David got nothing. In fact, later David lost because of this. You don't, if you know the story, Mephibosheth turns on him later. At least it appears so. It's unclear. It works for this morning, so I'm going to go with it. No matter. It was a source of deep sadness and loss for David. No matter exactly, it's very unclear. But, but, but David really, he makes himself vulnerable here, and he pays, I mean, no good deed goes unpunished. And all the people said, amen. I mean, you've obviously not done a whole lot of good deeds if you're not, like, heartily amening that. Because in Hesed, you give more than you get, and that can be hard, can it? When you give more than you get, especially over years and years of marriage or friendship or relationship, and that's why you have to be sourcing your love and God's love for you. Because if you try to balance out your love for others versus their love for you, most of the time you will always at least feel like you're on the losing end. You'll be walking around carrying a negative balance. And that can leave you discouraged. It can leave you bitter and contemptuous. Because that bitterness and that contempt, those things are the result of weariness over uneven love. When you look at this person, you say, I've all this time, all of these years, I've loved you more than you loved me. I've been good to you and you've been bad to me. And you become bitter and contemptuous. But see, here's, so here's what you have to do. If you, if you try to balance out your love for others versus their love for you, that's where it'll leave you. But what you have to do is you have to become a person who learns how to weigh your love Your love for others and their love for you against a different, against a different axis. You have axis, axis, right? This axis. You have to weigh your love for God against his love for you. 
And when you weigh your love for God against his love for you, then you always win. And it is infinitely uneven. God is giving infinitely more to you than, he, than you are giving back to him. You are in such a surplus from God's hesed to you that you could never be, ever be in a deficit as you show hesed love to others. That's the way faith and love work, see? That's, that's the source. That's how the covenant works. And so I need to finish up. What's the takeaway? What's the takeaway for us this morning as we think about this text? Well, Mephibosheth is the object of David's hesed uh, for two reasons. It means really two things. There are two features of the text that are prominent. The first, the two things that stand out is this, is that Mephibosheth is a candidate for hesed from David because he was David's enemy and also because he was lame. And so here's our applications. Love your enemies and love the vulnerable. Love your enemies and love the vulnerable. That is the kingdom of hesed. Now let's, give me just a few more minutes and we'll, we'll take each of those very briefly. Love your enemies as an application of this text. I chose, I chose Luke 6 as the law passage today where it says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Now that's not a suggestion. It is how all who belong to the kingdom of Jesus are supposed to live. But let's be honest and say it's hard. And it's hard because in each of those scenarios, you're having to act in the opposite way of how you're being treated. You see that? It's so uneven. I mean, the way relationships usually work is this. There's a mutuality, right? Jesus alluded to this. He said, normally what happens is you love those that love you, and you love them, and they love you, and it's a beautiful thing, and you do good to them, and they do good to you, and it's all, and that's going really well, and it's all really easy, but it takes something more. It takes something supernatural when you love someone, and you're expecting them to love you in return, but when you love them, they're actually hateful to you in, in return. And then they take advantage of you in return. Those good deeds you've done, they begin to, you begin to be punished for them. What do you do then? He says, well, see, that takes something more. That's what he means when he says, well, what benefit is it to you if you're just loving the people who love you and if you're just being nice to people and being nice to you? There's no benefit in that. And if you dig down to that word, that word benefit there translated in Luke chapter 6 is the word charis, which is the Greek word for grace. What grace is that, Jesus said? So there, grace refers to the supernatural work of the gospel in your heart to make you the kind of person who can be hated and yet still love. Who can be being treated terribly and still wish the best for the other person because you know that when you hated God, he loved you. He didn't treat you as your sins deserved. He didn't treat you as your poor attitude deserved. When you were God's enemy, Jesus died for you. And you think about the grace of that, the soldiers nailing Jesus's hands and feet to the cross, and you watch him praying for those men, Father, forgive them. And you realize there's no other love in all the world like that. And that's the love that he's shown to me. And see, if you believe that, if you believe in Jesus, and if you believe in Jesus' love like that, then you'll love. If you believe you're loved like that, then you'll begin to love like that. It gives you supernatural vision and strength to love others the same way, even your enemies. But we're also pointed, I think, here towards the vulnerable. Not only to love our enemies, but to love the vulnerable. Give expecting nothing in return, Jesus said. I mean, he went further. We're going to read in Luke 14 this week. He said, when you throw a party, don't invite people who you know will invite you to their party. <laughs> you know, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. They can't repay you. Those are the people that should be on your guest list. Because if you lend to those who can repay you, there's no credit. 
By the way, that's that word grace again. There's no grace. It's only grace if you give and get nothing back in return. There's this verse in Matthew that has become important to me, like a life verse in some ways, where, where Jesus said, you receive without pay, so give without pay. You receive without pain, so give without pay. You receive without pain, that's grace. So give without pay, that's graciousness. Grace makes you gracious. Christians should be the most gracious, patient, understanding, unforgiving, unflinching, never giving up on people, people around. And that's the way you go about doing friendship and marriage and church, loving without conditions, giving because you're overflowing from the inner fullness of God's grace to you, not because you're trying to get something back to fill up the inner emptiness and need inside. That's like a voracious animal, right? And this will also point, I think, with Hesed, it'll point you towards the most vulnerable, to give to people who can't pay you back, one-way generosity for widows and orphans, for single moms, for homeless children and teenagers in Polk County, schools for those that need a shelter that now don't have a place. I didn't know that, Brad. That weighs on me. Mephibosheth's disability is a picture of our own spiritual failure. And Paul said, not many of you were wise or noble or strong. God chose you to be his. He called you and he saved you because you were weak, because you were nobodies. God showed his love for you in this, that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you, which means Jesus didn't die for you because you were righteous or good. That's how it normally works. Jesus died for the undeserving, for the ungodly, for the weak. And Hesed aims not just at the weak and the poor, but Hesed aims at every person's weakest, weakest moments, at their most sinful, broken places. Hesed points itself at the places of deepest shame because it's those places where only this kind of love can heal. It's the very love of God in his people toward one another, healing our hearts with that kind of love. It's what William Gatsby wrote about when he penned this hymn, which is a really, really great old hymn. He said, the love of Christ, so rich and free, fixed on his own eternally, nor earth nor hell can it remove, long as he lives his own he'll love. He goes on, love cannot from its post withdraw, nor death, nor sin, nor hell, nor law can turn the surety's heart away. He'll love his own to endless day. He loves through every changing scene, nor aught from him can Zion wean. Not all the wanderings of her heart can make his love for her depart. Aren't those great words? When you know that you're loved like that, what it does is it creates this new capacity in you to show the Hesed love of God to the people who need it most in your life. Would you pray with me that God would do that in us and make us a community of people like that? So, Father, we do pray that as we finish our time together this morning, that you would do that great work in us, that this would be a place where the children that are baptized in this church would grow up would grow up and learn uh, that they don't have to perform, that there is a love that is without conditions, that they belong and are wanted and welcome despite whatever mistakes they might make, where we, who have been so conditioned in all of the relationships we know in our lives to think that if we don't do it right or if we somehow mess it up, that that's it, the relationship is over, that we would learn a different way of relating to one another in the way that we love one another, that there would be a level of commitment and a depth of affection for one another that would just begin to unravel all the knots that our hearts are tied in. Knowing that it is an expression of your grateful love for us in Christ, the Calvary love that you have shown to us, and yet you say to us, take up your cross and follow me. And so give us the grace 
and the courage to do so with our eyes focused on the one who, enduring the cross, despising its shame, for the joy of knowing us, endured through all those things. May we endure in his great love, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Did you notice the, if you were here last week, you made the, the U shape of that song? Once, once an enemy, now seated at your table, forgiven, restored. You know, Jesus, thank you. Oh, lover of my soul, I want to live for you. You see that? And so, uh, in light of all that God has done for us, he sends us out now to live for him. Not living as if we need to go out and prove something to God. We have his heart. We have his love. We have his smile. If your faith is in Jesus, all of those things are true, to you, true for you. And so you can go with these words ringing in your ear, these words of promise. This is God's promise of future commitment to you no matter what might come your way this week. And so go in gratitude to love as you've been loved. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Stay warm. Go in his love.